0: Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. It is great to have you with us as always for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. And of course we've been talking a lot of tennis in recent weeks with the Australian Open and what a great success it was a couple of weeks ago. Well... My guest today was probably the busiest person at the Australian Open, with all things considered, because she is the Fed Cup captain. She was also a commentator with Channel 9 and uh, had to step into the breach with Ash Barty as well. So she didn't have too many spare moments at the Australian Open. Alicia Mollock is in the studio. Thanks Alicia? for having me. I wouldn't Welcome. have
1: had it uh, any other way, though. Yes, a few extra duties. Um you mentioned Ash and her coach, Craig Tires. It was just, I guess, life goes on. And um, after that, well, during the Sydney final, he was in bed, ill. Yeah. And so uh, that continued the first week of the AO, uh, a lot of pressure on my shoulders. So I was very happy when he returned for the fourth round. Um, and it was a great moment for Craig too, to be there at the most important time for Ash. Certainly gave her a boost.
0: There were a lot of lurgies going around at the time and a few people went down. Was it just a matter with Craig of just um, quarantining him and keeping him away from Ash?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's probably reflects his personality. I mean, he and the type of um, individual he is. He didn't want to, you know, the most important thing is um, performing for Ash. So he certainly didn't want to pass anything on to his pupil in Ash. So a very unselfish coach. That's what we like. And yeah, he's he's done a brilliant job and is doing a brilliant job with Ash. She's had phenomenal results from her time out of the sport to this point in time. She's making leaps. Um, continually, she's got an incredibly bright future.
0: Everybody talks about her being just automatic top ten in years to come. Would you agree with that?
1: Well, it's it's not automatic, but she's at twelve at the current time. She's um, she's this summer she's produced something she's never produced before. Getting to the second week of a Grand Slam, overcoming a past champion on center court. Um, you know, in Maria Sharapova, put up a great fight in the quarterfinal against Plushkova. Um, But she, look, Ashley's going from strength to strength. She's still incredibly young in terms of tennis terms and tennis time. Um, She's building. She's now, I think, at a, a place and a space where she feels confident and a real sense of belonging at the top. Um, And I think once you are there, it takes a while to settle before you then reset your goals. And I know she's had to do that because one of Ash's goals this year was to beat um, some of the top five players in the world, beat the number one player in the world, Halep. She did that Mm. uh, in the second week of the season in Sydney. So it's constantly, I guess, resetting uh, those goals and what you're shooting for as an athlete.
0: And the amazing thing about her is that at a very early age, she's going to be a role model for the likes of Priscilla Hon coming through and also Astra Sharma. Um, she is a role model, even though she's only just early 20s.
1: Yeah, she, she is. And I think she also enjoys... Um I guess that responsibility, that's what comes with professional sport. And when you're good at a sport, you know you're going to have not just children looking up to you, but you're going to have the eyes of the world and the public at you. And, and that's something now, I think that's the biggest difference we've seen in Ash Barty is she's accepted that. I think I think she enjoys it to a degree because she's very confident in her skin. She she carries herself so well on the court, um, I hope every youngster in Australia, male and female, the kids around our nation, were turning on the TV when she was playing during the Hopman Cup, Sydney, the Australian Open. The way she carries herself on the court as a sports person is something to be admired, um, and particularly with my involvement in women's tennis. I, I hope that a lot of young girls watched her play, watch the way that she uses her kick serve, her slice, her touch at net. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that style of play could transfer... To that next generation, because that's what happened with me. I turned on the TV. I saw Steffi Graf. Mm. Guess what? Guess what? I all I tried to do for the rest of my life was to run around and hit forehands. It it doesn't take much. It ta- takes a positive impression from someone that you know is your idol.
0: Speaking of turning on the TV, if people did, they heard a lot of you on Nine. How was that experience for you, and, and how do you think the change went from Seven to Nine after such a long time?
1: I love um, broadcasting. I, if I wasn't in the commentary box, if I wasn't commentating on tennis matches, I would be home watching them all, um, probably talking my way through it as well. I, I love sport. It, it doesn't stop at tennis for me. Um, I take an interest in everything, most uh, particularly with Australian athletes, every single Australian sport. But I had some wonderful colleagues. The final I called with Sam Smith – whom I've worked with for many years. Um, The last couple of uh, matches, Jim Courier also in the box. So the Mm. dynamic of the three, it's unusual, but you have to prepare for anything. Um, but I think we, we had a really great call in the final. You Everyone did. adds a very different point of interest, you know, and it's there's plenty of laughs in there too, don't get me wrong. You know, right before we went to air for the final, Sam had a, her list of notes prepared for the opening. Sure enough, her, her mic cord gets coiled around the chair. She can't even get on air, so Jim had to lift off, <laughs> take the glory, snatch it right out of her hands. Um, so... I. I love the fact that it is all live, it's in the moment, on the spot, and I know it's something you're very familiar with.
0: Uh, yes, I am. We've shared the bunker, and that was one thing I was going to ask you, because uh, we've actually called a couple of matches together down in the bunker, but you had three in the final. Uh, you're sitting on each other's shoulders, or what was <laughs> just, going on down there?
1: Yeah, we just about Well, There's no, no room to manoeuvre, but it's um what I love about calling a sport from that particular spot. You're at the back of the court. Um, You are at basically eye level to where the players' Mm. feet are. You're seeing the emotions of the players too. In tennis, uh, it's very common during points for players to return to the back of the court where the ball kids are. That's where they have their little moment. They pick at their strings, um, and that's where they let out their emotion. That is right in front of us. They can't see that between the glass, but they have their back to their opponent, but I feel like they let out a lot of emotion. You can, you can see and feel so much from an athlete from that position. And we know how much tennis has changed over the course of the last 10 years, particularly women's tennis, with how uh, strong and dynamic and fast uh, the sport has become. And that's something, too, that at eye level, from the comms box at the back of the court, we have a real sense of the movement of players, how quick they are, how dynamic they are. Uh, I think it's one of the best seats in the house.
0: And it was a refreshing Australian Open in lots of ways, in particular in the women's section, because you had Danielle Collins coming up through 25 years of age. Nobody had ever really heard of her until she came to Australia. Amanda Anisimova, Uh, 17 years of age is going to be a superstar. Women's tennis is in pretty good shape at the moment.
1: Yeah, another name that comes to mind is Diana Yastremska. She took out uh, Sam Stoza, I think just 17 years of age. But, um, you know, basically every Australian Open, uh, there is a real bolter and there's a, a surprise factor in the quarterfinals or semifinals. And what a story Danielle Collins was. And I guess the first word that comes to my mind is swagger. Yes. Because she has it, she wears it, she walks it. Um, and it's part of her. It's it's not put on. She's a really tough athlete um, inside and out. She She's very strong on the court. Um, she lets her emotions be seen and be known, you know, and she's one of the players who is not afraid to take it to the opponent mm. in any way, shape, or form, no matter who they are. And I, I really like that about an athlete. She's had to come through tennis the hard way, through college tennis, Um, and, yeah, a remarkable story, Um, and it's great for tennis. We see so many of the big names remain at the top, but I love seeing a breakthrough story like that.
0: Well, it's interesting you should talk about the intensity that you feel in the bunker and the players coming up close to the commentary position. With Danielle, I did that match in Brisbane where she played Petra Kavitova and went three hours, and we were out on show court one and she would literally be almost touching distance on the other side of the glass, and she is so intense. She was frightening. I thought she was going to just run through the glass and come into the commentary box.
1: Yeah, well, if if looks could kill, right? Yeah. Because, um, look, there's been a number of moments throughout the event and one, uh, the Australian Open, one in particular comes to mind from Danielle Collins is when she played Angelique Kerber. She didn't just play Angelique Kerber. She dismantled, mm. demolished Angelique Kerber, the left-hander, Uh, number two in the world, just an amazing victory for Danielle Collins, but a point in the match where um, after an unforced, first shot, unforced error from Collins, um, Angelique Kerber gave her the comets as in, you know, come on. She was just pumping herself up and that just completely flicked a switch for Danielle Collins because the next point was one of the loudest yells of all time. She was back, in Angelique Kerber's face and not afraid. That's what, um, That's the way you have to be. You have to use every single skill or confidence that you possess. And that's what Danielle Collins does.
0: Now, as this goes to air, you're actually going to be a long way away from the people who are listening to this because you're on Fed Cup duties against the United States. What's the Fed Cup year look like?
1: Well, we, tennis and life goes on after the Australian Open. I know in Melbourne, it's sort of a bit of a stop to the tennis season, Mm. but but we keep going. You know, four days after the men's final on the Sunday, um, our Australian national women's team, the Fed Cup team, uh, including Ash Barty, uh, Daria Gavrilova, Priscilla Hon, Kim Burrell, and Astra Sharma, and the rest of the staff and team we yeah we we board a flight, we head to the states, we are in World group one, so this year, as a nation, we have um the legitimate chance of winning the fed cup it's been a very long time, I feel like we're deserving of it, but it's an exciting time too, because we're back competing as a team and um, our players travel right around the world for eight, nine months a year. They're with their coaches. It's a very singular sport. So they love the fact that during Fed Cup weeks, they are together. They are genuine friends and mates. Um, they respect each other. So it's a really good group. And I think uh, this Fed Cup against the United States, we have quite a lot of youth. If you consider our best player and the leader of our group, Ash Barty, currently – and then the youth that sits behind her, I think it's quite amazing. And the more that we can bring, I guess, a younger generation having more experiences with those at the top of women's tennis, so I think the quicker we'll see a transition from players ranked maybe 150 to 350, to really push up to where they belong in Grand Slams. Um, and they force the point of um, getting themselves in Grand Slams as opposed to relying on wild cards. So I think we're a chance of winning the Fed Cup this year. We've worked incredibly hard. We've got committed athletes. That's what I'm thankful for too. You know, Ash and Dash are the first players to put their hand up to play Fed Cup for Australia. It's amazing.
0: In particular, in light of what's going on with the men and with all of the... um eruptions and and difficulties that are going on in men's tennis at the moment. it must be good to have that dynamic amongst the team where they actually want to be there with each other and they want to compete for their country.
1: Yeah, we have, um, I think from the women's side, they're the genuine people and personalities. What I appreciate most about the athletes on in women's tennis or particularly at the top, Ashdash, and the women that I just mentioned before and, and even below is they're all pretty honest and I think you can have honest conversations with them. Um, you know, I'm pretty proud of the way that they've carried themselves on the court. And I I also sympathise and empathise at times when they're performing, they're doing well on the tennis court and should be commanding the headlines in the news and, and print papers, especially. Um, you know, at times it's frustrating when uh, that spotlight gets shifted uh, to other topics and areas, because I think our women's Tennis is is moving forward. We're doing some great things. And I think um, the players are deserving of recognition.
0: I mentioned all your busyness. Uh, The one thing that I didn't mention is being a mum of two. That'll keep you on
1: your toes. Yeah, well, that's my real job. Yeah. Actually, (laughs) I mean that. Yeah. And then uh, I, you know, I I love what I do in tennis. I love working with athletes. at the, the coal front of competition. I also love working, um, you know, in participation with children. I have a very different appreciation of sport now, of travel, uh, of dedication. And being a mother is something that I've always wanted to be. I, I love the selfless nature of it. Um, I've learned to enjoy the chaotic nature of it. Uh, I love nothing more than making sure my kids have and have everything that they need in terms of, I think, support. Um, that's important to me. And I know what nurturing parents do for a child because I had that sort of childhood growing up with my parents. Um, I have a Polish background, but as children, we were always encouraged. And I think um, that certainly helped me in my career. I would just like to support my children in that fashion, along with my husband, Tim. But... Kids uh they take time away from you don't they 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 demand they're very demanding they rule the roost they rule the day you're on their time but um yeah there's absolutely nothing better in the world our kids are 7 and 4 now so school's starting we're on that journey now
0: is it tougher now to go away. I mean, your profession is that you have to travel um, and you yes. go to all various parts of the world. Is it really difficult to leave them behind?
1: It is. Yes, it is. However, I've been doing it since they were babies and I'm, I'm never away longer than you know two or th- three weeks at a time. The longest stint I did was when um, our daughter Mika was uh, one year old and I was away four weeks for the Olympics, the Rio Olympics. That was difficult. Mm. Almost a month away... As a mother, and but what I've learnt is that when children are in a really supportive and loving environment, they don't have to be with mum and dad. They can be with grandma and grandpa. Um, they can be with great friends and family, and they can still be happy and safe. I mean, when I call my kids now, that they, they want to say hi, mum, and then they throw the phone down, or they say, mummy, I'm pressing the red button. That's what they say. They're, they're not interested. <laughs> In um, they're not interested in chatting too much. But I, I know that they're happy in their environment. So to me, it's also important that my kids um, are aware and happy for me to go away. They know that I'm with the tennis players. I say I'm going away. I'm going to play tennis with Ash and Dash. I'm not playing, but I'm obviously helping out. With our Fed Cup team, but it's important for them to know that mum, mum has to go away, and she has commitments, and she has work too. I'd like for that to reflect um, on my children too, when when they get to the point of work or deciding on their future, knowing that we all have responsibilities and commitments.
0: Well, from your children, I want to talk about when you were a kid. And we'll do that on the other side of the break and find out where the journey began for Alicia Mollick, who is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
1: Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
0: What a pleasure it is to have the Fed Cup captain, Alicia Mollick, as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Alicia... Let's go back to the start of the journey. Adelaide was where it all began for you.
1: Absolutely. That's um, where my roots are. I grew up in Kidman Park, which is towards Henley Beachway of Adelaide. Same house, um, even now that my parents live in, which I'll be visiting soon. But I had a, a great childhood. I remember you know, spending most of my time at the local park or in the street. I grew up in a street full of boys mostly. My brother Richard is three years older than me. So to join in, to feel accepted and and like I belonged, I had to compete because um, every day after school there was either cricket, there was football, there was Red Rover, we were riding bikes, we were sprinting to the shop, we were um, skateboarding, we were doing everything but probably spending time in the house. And um, I'm thankful for that because I think that's where a lot of my sporting skills developed and coordination. I had to keep up with the older boys and my brother, I had to hold my own as well because um, I remember walking away second best as well from a lot of tackles on the soccer field. Yeah. You know, my brother was pretty tough on me, but I think it was um, it certainly helped me and held me in good stead. But I, um, I had great memories, not just from sport, growing up at Seaside Tennis Club, but in my local school as well, was Kidman Park Primary School. I lived a pretty average, normal life, but I loved... I absolutely loved being outdoors, playing sport. I had probably, there was five or six sports I played till the age of 10. Tennis, there was tennis, basketball, which I loved. That was my second love. Swimming, I did Polish dancing. I have Polish heritage. So that was something mum and dad always encouraged me to do. I remember going on a Saturday morning to Polish school as well, learning the language and going to the local Polish church. So it was a really normal upbringing, um, and I'm very thankful that it was.
0: So where did the tennis influence come from?
1: I um started playing at my local club Seaside at about the age of 7. So it was holiday time and purely mum and uh, mum and dad were just looking for for us kids to get out of the house to do something. A f- good friend of mum suggested that maybe uh, she take us kids down to the club. Their son was doing a clinic at Seaside. Our mum took my brother and I stayed on the court. I remember picking up balls for two hours. And I think the coach recognised that I was so happy to be there. I was so desperate to, and eager to join in. I think he finally let me on that day. And I sort of didn't look back since. My first racket was a wooden racket. I'll never forget that. My second racket, Dad bought from a second-hand shop. I still remember the shop on King William Road. It was a Junior Prince racket. It still had the terry toweling. On the grip. It had multicolour strings and that was my pride and joy for many, many years. Have you still got Uh, it? Uh it's yeah, it's in mum and dad's garage somewhere. Yes, it is. And after that, I I only ever had one racket at a time. I look at kids now who are ten or twelve, they're carrying three or four rackets in their bag. Dad would buy me one great racket and that was it. So if I broke it, that was it. That was the end of it. I wasn't getting another one. That I think turned my level of appreciation, I guess, to ne- to next level. Um, you know, Mum and Dad have always worked full time; they still do. They had to work hard for things, and I appreciated what they did for me as a youngster. I remember my first coach at Seaside was Kevin Swanson, and up until the age of about uh, eleven or twelve, I would only have a half an hour or maybe an hour lesson when I was maybe ten. But my brother and I used to divide an hour. So Richard, my brother, would take the first half hour with Kevin alone. I'd take the second half hour. Dad would always be there at the end of the lesson because he'd come straight from work. And I remember he always would choose the crispest notes, $40 notes. It was $40 for an hour lesson at that time. But he would pass those to Kevin. But before he passed them to Kevin, he'd make sure they are all straight and neat, not too many bends and creases in them. I'll never, ever forget that. And that, I think, made me appreciate everything, how much – effort my parents went to give me the opportunity to play sport. And that's what children don't see these days. They don't see the transaction in what they're given or the opportunities that are presented to them. I'm not sure most kids have ever walked into a bank or known what it's like to save for um, a sporting lesson. So mm-hmm. to me, that really flicked a switch. I, I, was, I worked hard in that time. I always worked hard. And I think um, that was a reason uh, for that.
0: The other thing that's different with kids these days, and I guess it's a a safety issue, is you talked about you'd go to school and then you'd go out and it would be sport of some description. And parents in those days would say it's fine for kids to go out in the street or to go to the local park. But these days it probably doesn't happen that much because of the fears that go along with it. Um, It's a different age in some ways
1: yeah it is most definitely, but you know there wasn 't two of us playing a game it was It was twelve of us yeah you know we'd uh you 'd pick up the phone after school there's no texting or messaging in school, so or you'd door knock on the five houses as you walk to the park to see who was keen to join in so there, we you kind of moved in packs you there was always i think a minimum of six players we 'd organize to um yeah probably soccer was the sport we played the most at the local park. You're right with safety, but I think we still have to be encouraging with our kids to get out uh, and to play sport. It's vital. It's important. Most importantly, I think it gives children, and it gave me a sense of purpose and identity. I now see that translate to my children. They love walking up to Cottesloe Tennis Club, our local tennis club, because everyone at the club from juniors to senior level You know, those on the committee know our children. Our kids feel confident. They feel familiar with everyone. Our daughter Mika in particular likes going and doing the flowers with Karen, who looks after the grounds. It's it's a special place. And I don't think we have as much of that these days. And part of it is parents and families are busy. So when you're at a tournament, or a young kid's event, you're not spending hours upon hours getting to know other kids and other families. I think parents drive their kids there right before their match. They play their match. Um, they're taking them off to either another sport or back home. Mum's Dad's in another direction with son. Mum might be with daughter. So the, the pace of life has shifted so much. And um, I used to love nothing more than spending Saturdays. I'd play morning tennis. Uh, At Seaside Tennis Club, Jaslyn Hill was my doubles partner. By the way, in juniors, so I'd spend all morning there from eight o'clock till eleven thirty, not go home because senior tennis started at twelve. So then I'd jump in the senior team, afternoon team, and play from twelve till about five. I couldn't think of a better place to be. Mum would give me, mum and dad would throw me a few dollars at pack a lunch. I was in my element. At the tennis club.
0: Yeah. And it's even uh, at professional level, it's changed so much over the years. When you were talking about um, you know, the interaction and the intermingling of the kids, it took me to professional sport where it used to be after a game, even VFL or AFL footballers would have a beer together. But that sort of thing doesn't happen anymore. It just, there's, there's almost that segregation that happens from the cradle to the grave, if you like, in sport.
1: Yeah, it's true. It's shifted a lot. I mean, now you've got kids training hours upon hours, but they're not playing pen and tennis. So yeah. they're, not, uh, they're not just missing out on that factor, but it's the socialisation of maybe the skills from a, a 10 or 11-year-old to, to be around older kids or teenagers or adults, learn the dialogue, um, you know, enjoy the banter, learn how to communicate with teammates. I mean, that's my favourite thing at the moment now. I li- love going down to my tennis club on a Thursday night. There's a bunch of women guys we all practice together and yes we do believe it or not we will have a beer afterwards it's there's nothing better for me in the world because we we sit around and we chat um occasionally i play pennant tennis as well on the weekend state grade i play that because i love my children knowing that mum and dad do play sport i like them being at the club i like them sitting on the picnic uh, rug having uh, eating whatever they like they love their can of lemonade when they go to the tennis club that's the highlight I like them knowing that mum and dad play sport, but they love being there. I love the fact that after pennant finishes, and I think that's why our kids hang around so long, because at 6.30 or 7, when the matches wind up on the grass courts, you know, afternoon tea comes out. You host your opponents, um, and that's what we do in Western Australia in Perth. And and that has really, I think, died off in a lot of other states, but it's something a lot of our juniors don't get to experience or feel because it's also those deep-set and deep-rooted relationships, which which help you along in life. It's not purely just tennis, but when you establish those, they can carry you really far in life.
0: You described so vividly your father handing over the money for those tennis lessons. When did that money start paying dividends, if you like? When did you start to realise that there was something that you had that could take you a long way in the game?
1: I think it started paying dividends when I was invited to join the Australian Institute of Sport. So four, four women was, or girls were selected, four boys, and uh, we were selected to move to Melbourne to become part of Australia's elite tennis program. That's when I really thought, wow, okay, I am, I am good at what I do. I was probably the top in my age group in Australia. I'd been on a few representative tours over to Europe um and that's when it started getting serious but it was difficult i did my final year year 12 by distance i went I had a regular schooling life my whole life and then for year 12 i did it by distance education i lived in melbourne i trained all day had to teach myself year 12 i had one phone lesson per for 1 hour per subject and half the time i'd miss that because i was training or i had other commitments so It was an incredibly difficult year, having to self-teach but yet um, shoulder the responsibilities of trying to be a professional athlete. I wouldn't trade it uh, for anything at the minute, but it was hard. I was also away from my family uh, for the most important year of my schooling life. So... um, you know, I had to I had to be pretty hard very early. And for most parents, they wouldn't let their kids probably escape their home environment in year 12. That would be crazy, wouldn't it? Mm. Um, but I guess mum and dad knew that I wanted to pursue tennis. They always respected my decisions. In fact, they encouraged me to make my own. Um, and also that meant that I had to take responsibility for my decision and be really dedicated.
0: The one thing when I think of... Uh, seeing you play um apart from your game style was your fitness you were always one of the fittest players on tour at was my best only at, at my best at your best yes you had your issues with various things along the way but when you were at your best you were amongst the fittest out there was that a mindset that you got early in your career that that was you had to work hard and you had to be as fit as you could possibly be and that was something that stuck with you
1: I did, but I, I, I was the fittest when I was at my best. I was—I I felt invincible. That's mm. how when I played my best tennis the summer of 2005, I felt completely invincible. I felt completely bulletproof. I felt like I could be out on the court in 40-degree heat for hours upon hours. It, nothing was a problem. I could cope with everything. Nothing was an issue. I'd almost demand and ask for more. I got to the point where I think my coach had to hold me back in terms of how much um, – Uh, how much output there was on the court uh, and physically. But I didn't really know what being fit was or what heart. you know, training at an intense level probably until I think maybe the age of 21 when I joined forces with David Taylor, one of my best coaches of all time, still a, a wonderful friend of mine. Um, we've maintained a really close and great um, long-standing relationship. But he'd come off the back of traveling for about six or seven years, helping out Martina Hingis, Melanie Molitor. And she trained with such a high intensity. I still remember the first session with Dave. I'd never felt like I'd felt before. He, you know, he'd made me keep one ball alive in a drill for 10 minutes. I'd never done that before. I'd never run side to side for 20 minutes straight without a breather or a break. I felt like throwing up. And that was at 21. I'd never felt that before. I never knew what that was. So I think Dave was instrumental in establishing a baseline of what tennis would be like, what it would feel like. But he also helped me identify and become really clear about what I was good at and my strengths. So once we were able to identify those, it was, there was a lot of focus on making the good things in my tennis great, That was my serve. That was my forehand, you know, and then, yes, for those things, I had to be incredibly strong and I had to get faster because I had to run around and hit my forehand. So I remember some of the work we did, the sessions were grueling. They they nearly killed me. But um, once I got to the point of getting through them, I'm the type of person that will ask for more and often we'd finish a session, and maybe that's just the mindset. You feel like you can't go anymore, but you're challenging yourself. I'd ask for, you know, okay, let's do 15 more minutes. It was this constant battle I had with myself to continue to push myself to the brink, but it helped me achieve.
0: It was a great grounding for the professional career. You spoke earlier about going away now, leaving the kids behind, but when you embark on that first year or two of travelling as a professional tennis player. How difficult was that to live out of the suitcase, to live that sort of existence? Was that something that you took to pretty easily?
1: Uh, No, it was difficult. It was probably fun for the first year and a half. You know, you're with your friends, you're travelling around the world, you're in Tokyo with, you know, I remember being there with my best friend. Brianne Stewart, and, you know, you're, you're, you're playing a lot of tennis, you're staying with Japanese families, you're jumping on trains in and out of Tokyo going shopping. You know, it's, it's fast and it's furious and you have a lot of fun and I enjoyed it so much. However, I, I didn't really um, find my feet for three or four years, you know. Yes, I was top 100 at 18, um, but I, I felt a bit lost for four years, you know. I felt like I was floundering at 100, I didn't quite know what I needed to do. I wasn't sure if I belonged. I wasn't that confident. I definitely wasn't at my peak in terms of physical strength, fitness and capabilities. Um, And it took me a long time to find my feet on the tour. I'm thankful now, reflecting on my career, that I had a lot of great um, role models around me, Australians that I think helped me find the way on the tour as well. And I named players like Nicole Pratt like um, Renee Stubbs and all the other Aussies at the time, Christine Radford, um, I have to throw in Rachel McQuillan also, Kerry-Ann Goose, women that when they met me for the first time, you know, invited me into the locker room in Wimbledon and invited me to the Australian corner. That to me, when they said, oh, Alicia, come down here, you know, this is where we have our lockers, I thought, thank God, I've been accepted. Mm. It's such a small thing. But when you're a young kid, you know, new on the block, you don't quite know where you should be. And when I guess the older cohort or women that you've looked up to your entire life, uh, I guess, invite you into their circle, that was a big deal to me. So I've never forgotten that. And um, I think that's why I've always been generous I feel like I've been generous maybe with with my time with with younger athletes coming through. Like Sam was always a few years younger, Casey DeLacqua too. You try and take the time to help these girls feel like they belong to something. And I'd like to think that they then have transferred it to the next generation beyond.
0: Speaking of that wonderful moment where you're accepted and taken into the locker room, I think most people consider that Wimbledon's the Holy Grail. That's that's the sacred place. What was it like walking out onto Wimbledon for your first match? Do you remember that?
1: I remember walking out onto Centre Court. I don't remember what my first match was. Can you believe that? Mm. Um, but I do remember I've got a – that's probably something I need to outline. I've got a terrible tennis brain. I'm, a very, I'm very in the moment. I couldn't often describe to you what happened, you know, on a break point – in the second-to-last game of a match. By the time I've walked off the court and cooled down with my coach, I'd forgotten that moment. So, I, you know, my tennis brain probably works a lot different to a lot of others that remember particular points in time or history. But I'll never forget a match against Lindsay Davenport walking onto centre court at Wimbledon. Uh, the Royal Box was full. And I remember the our locker room attendant advising us that there would be royalty, that as we were to enter the court, we were to curtsy. And I've never forgotten, but I've always reminded Lindsay of this. She doesn't remember it. She had bigger fish to fry, but she said, oh, it's Kaylee. she just follow me. And I thought, oh my gosh, thank God. So we, we stopped at the service line as we walked out. We turned around to face the Royal Box and we curtsied. And, um, you know, I I managed to get that off. It was fine, but it was it's a point in my life I reflect on, and I, I'm not sure if many people have ever um, been required uh, to curtsy, but it's a moment that I'll, I'll never forget, and then off we went for the match. But I've never forgotten that sporting moment, or I guess generosity from Lindsay even, Um, to take the time and and worry about me in the sense that she knew it was an occasion for me. She was the senior player. She didn't have to be nice to me. She was about to take me on, Mm. um, you know, in a battle on centre court. And that was the holy grail for Lindsay Davenport. She performed so well at Wimbledon. So it's just another nice touch and a special moment in my career.
0: When you spoke, Alicia, about the fact that you can't relate chapter and verse or recite chapter and verse about break points or what happened in a match. Do you think that that actually stood you in good stead in some ways that you you did live in the moment and you didn't dwell on the past? Would that be a fair summation that you were able to put things behind you pretty quickly?
1: Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. But, um, you know, it's, it's also important to remember the moments in sport that are tough and that really... I guess, hurt you at the time. So it's important to recognise those. But that's where, you know, a great coach comes into the play, like a David Taylor, whom, you know, I'd be cooling down every single match of uh, every day in my life working with him. We would run through the match for at least 20, 25 minutes uh, to remember the moments that were critical. So, but yes, it definitely held me in good stead because there's times that you want to forget too, such as times with injury.
0: Yeah, and we'll talk about some of those when we come back on the other side of the break. We'll talk about those moments that you recall, but we'll also talk about some of the struggles that you had with your body and all of the things that you went through in your career. Alicia Mullock is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, Celebrating Lives. Plenty more still to come. Stay with us.
1: Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
0: Great to have you with us and great to have Alicia Molik as my guest in the studio on This Is Your Sporting Life. For Tobin Brothers Funeral, Celebrating Lives, you talked about uh, remembering those great moments. What are the, the great moments? What's the moment in your career when you think back that you are most proud of?
1: Oh, the moment I won my bronze medal in Athens. It was an incredibly hot day, uh, a difficult event. There's nothing better than playing for Australia, but tennis is it's pretty lonely the rest of the year. Although, you, yes, you have AUS next to your name, you're not playing in front of a huge big team, you're not having dinner at the food hall with other athletes. So that, to me, was incredibly special, winning a bronze medal in singles, the first ever singles medalist out of Australia for tennis. Um, and on, I was particularly proud also because of the calibre of players standing next to me on the dais once we were presented with our medals Um, Winning the gold medal was Justine Ennan, who was an absolute legend of of our sport. The silver medalist was Amelie Maresmo, um, so well respected and regarded and one of our all-time greats too. And and then there was me. So it was um, quite remarkable, uh, a moment in time that felt like a fairy tale, actually. Every kid grows up, watches the Summer Olympics. And so to me, to stand there um, and also in the home of the olympics too athens greece mm. it was it was amazing um you know to have the olive wreath placed on my head as well that was it was just incredible you know i've since read an article too that um bronze medalists live a very long life you know if you win gold you you sail into the sunset Life's great. If you win silver, you always think about what could have been. You've missed out on the gold medal. And if you win a bronze medal, you've, you've got something. You haven't walked away with nothing. You're not fourth place. So um, I think that'll hold me in good stead.
0: Mm. The whole Olympic experience, um, because you play an individual sport, and you touched on it with Fed Cup, the, the team spirit, the dynamic, the camaraderie that goes on. What was that Olympic experience like for someone who comes from an individual sport to all of a sudden be associated with a huge team representing their country?
1: It was incredible, amazing. It, it makes you appreciate the the efforts that uh, every other sporting athlete from Australia um, or the lengths and the dedication and the levels of dedication that they go to, because in tennis yes we it's a it 's an individual sport, but we are rewarded. we travel around the world, we play tennis tournaments, we get a paycheck every single week, um, you know there's so many other sports where. Pay isn't great. They're athletes that work just as hard, if not harder, they, they work full-time jobs. So, you know, I've been in other gyms and particularly the VIS where I've seen, you know, rowers on the ergo row till they collapse and can't even stand up. That's an athlete. And I think being at the uh, Olympics helped me appreciate um, the dynamics of other sports, the dedication, but opened my eyes too to other great relationships, and I've, which I've formed throughout many years I'm still, you know, good friends with many athletes that I met in my first and second Olympics. I played in Sydney. Um, Then I I did play in Beijing. I also played in Athens and was um, team captain for tennis or team leader in Rio, which is a great experience too. But there's nothing better than having to perform and feeling the sense of responsibility for your teammates. And uh, to be honest with you, I was probably born to play a team sport, and that's when I, I really have shown my best in my tennis so maybe that's reflective of i mean who knows did i choose the wrong sport i don't know but they're the highlights of my career it's always when i'm with people it's when i'm with my mates my teammates um and when i'm around a group
0: i'm tipping if you're still on the platform at the olympic games the dais at the olympic games and if you got to be top 10 in the world i reckon you probably chose the right sport
1: well, it's, uh, yeah, uh, you talk about moments in my life and that was an absolute highlight. It, it's um, tennis for me hasn't just delivered, um, I guess, a, a lifelong love, but it's it's been a great vocation. It's something that I've always loved doing and participating in. Um, I always feel like, well, right throughout my career, I always felt like I was learning. I wanted to know more. I was always a student of the game. I loved watching tennis matches. You know, a lot of players probably um, shunt watching their opponents, but to me, I couldn't get enough because I couldn't get enough information about everyone else around me trying to achieve the same things. I I was a real student of the game. I love talking tennis history. I love knowing every single thing about the sport. I think it's important. And to a degree, some of that gets lost these days. So I, I think it's really important too. And I encourage with our juniors to take time to be familiar with our rich sporting history in tennis.
0: You mentioned that moment of standing on the dais at the Olympic Games. What about from an individual sense? You had titles along the way. You had a win over Sharapova in yeah, the that's, final.
1: that's a highlight. And that was in Zurich. It was a few months after she'd won Wimbledon. Everyone wanted to beat Sharapova. Yeah. You know, it was her first Wimbledon, this new Russian kid on the block. She was young, 17. I wanted to knock her off her perch. So I I was hungry for that win. But um, I, it, to me, that was um, one of the biggest moments. Also, the quarterfinal at the Australian Open against all. I beat uh, Venus Williams, night match, round of 16 then lost 8-6 in the third to Lindsay Davenport. Again, she got me. Um, But when I, I think back to the match against Maria Sharapova, I remember it for different reasons, not because of the win. Um, it was the biggest tournament I'd ever ever um, won in my entire life. But I remember being killed in the first set. And I was playing terribly. I wasn't confident. Uh, I couldn't hit the middle of the racket. I was going into my shell. I felt like sinking down into a hole. I was embarrassed. I knew it was being broadcast on Eurosport right around uh, not just the world but Europe. I was embarrassed about my performance in the first... This is what goes through your mind as a tennis player, and I thought, this is going to be terrible. I'm going to go downhill now. This could be, you know, I hope it's not a six-love set. I just wanted to drag the time out. So after the first set that I lost, I I still remember I thought, right, I need to try and get more time on the clock on the match on the match court here. So I started, you know, going to the town more often. I did my shoelaces up a couple of times. Probably shouldn't have done that, but I was trying to buy time. I was trying to buy time to think and react. Sure enough, it got to you know one all, two all, um, three all. Then I broke her. I broke her serve for the first time. As soon as I broke her serve, I knew I could win that set. I wasn't thinking about the match. This is a final. I wasn't thinking about winning the match. I was thinking about winning the second set. A uh, second set. I won that. It was one set all. And then I thought, you know what? I can I can knock her off. I can beat beat her. I know how to win this match. And I went on to win the match 6-3. I served out the match. But in a nutshell, the way and I guess the mental turmoil I went through to win that match and probably doubting myself, I mean, I doubted myself my whole career. I've always never been the most confident tennis player. It's taken a lot of achieving and hard work for me to believe in myself. You know, I probably wasn't confident on the tennis court until I was 25. I spent my whole year, my whole life playing this sport. Um, so it's amazing what maybe a facade that you, you put up when you're playing competition. You're not going to let the world or the press or everyone know that you, you're not feeling great inside, you're not confident, you're not sure you're that good. Um, and that's why that match in particular stands out for me. It's always been about setting little goals, and, and that's what I had to do in that match. It was. Um, I look back and I think, how could I go from not believing at the start? I didn't think I could actually beat her, really, to knowing I was going to beat her after two sets of tennis. I mean, that's a remarkable. It's a seismic shift.
0: Was Sharapova as much a competitor as a young person as she is now? Because the stories go that she's... Not liked that much in the locker room, uh, depending on who you talk to. She's Undoubtedly, she is a great competitor. Um, There's no question about that. But she is very single-minded in everything that she does.
1: I think that's what makes her so good, and I appreciate that. But she probably doesn't give anyone the time to like her, hmm. if, if that makes sense. Yeah, she, it does. She goes about her business very clinically. It's like she's got an appointment to get to, you know, finish practice and she'll head out of the locker room straight away. She won't dine with other athletes or teams, has a very, um, you know, her, her very close-knit group around her. And that's the way I guess tennis has turned. A lot of athletes operate that way and maybe that's why Maria has become Um, you know, one of the greats in our sport, won a number of Grand Slams because she's had that singular mind.
0: Hmm. Um, And she doesn't care what other people think.
1: No, she doesn't care at all. No, she just goes about her business and treats it like work and, you know, doesn't go out of her way to, to form or make other relationships. But to perform, she hasn't needed to do that. You know, I'm a very different kettle of fish. I couldn't have survived. I couldn't have continued to play tennis if I didn't have a friendship on the tour. I just I couldn't have kept playing tennis because mm. to me, that's what it was all about. It's about forming relationships with players, with friends, choosing doubles partners that you want to go to dinner with, um, forming relationships with staff that work at events, the WTA tour, people that you see every week. I like to get to know them better. Um, they're a bit of a, a family for me and a support group. I needed that.
0: As usual, Uh, My producer, John O'Nash is suggesting that I'm going on way too long and this could go on for another hour or so, but we've got to our last break. And when we come back, we've talked about the highs. I want to talk about the hardships because you did have some of those in your career. Alicia Mollock is my guest. We'll be back to wrap things up on the other side of the break on This Is Your Sporting Life.
1: Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
0: Our final segment with Alicia Mollock on This Is Your Sporting Life. For Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives. Alicia, I mentioned that you had some tough times as well. What do you think when I give you the two words, vestibular neuronitis?
1: Oh, crap time. Yeah. A really crap time. I. Um, what is it? Well, it's um, damage to your middle ear, which uh, every person and being needs their middle ear to be functioning. It provides your perception, helps with with your vision, um, in knowing where you are in space. It helps with coordination. You know, we all need coordination to move, to walk to the other side of the room, uh, moving our microphone in front of us. We need coordination to even uh, have the tactile nature to hold the microphone. Um, But vasibular neuritis was damaged to my middle ear. I remember waking up, took a long time, by the way, to diagnose it. But I remember waking up for a tennis match in Charleston, South Carolina. David Taylor, my coach, was coaching me at the time. It was after the summer of 2005. Uh, we spoke about how much I like to push myself to the brink physically. After the Australian Open in the summer of 05, I had such a, a remarkable summer. It was high intensity, but I was also on a roll and I wanted to keep playing. I went to the Middle East, played in Doha, Dubai, went over to the States quickly, kept training hard. I, I was on a roll and I didn't want to fall off that that track that I was on and the trajectory too. I felt like if I took time out from the sport or had a break, I might not be able to get, that's how you know conscious I was of maybe losing that form that I was in. So I really pushed myself physically to the brink. It was only a number of months after the Australian Open, where in Charleston, South Carolina, I woke up for a match, got out of bed at and I basically fell into the wall. You know, it's, it was the, the day before a match, I had dinner with a friend. Um, you know, I obviously before a match, you're not going to have a glass of wine. You, you're doing sticking to your same routine. You're doing everything normal. I fell into the wall and I everything felt like it was moving. I felt like I was in space and everything around me was floating and moving. I, I couldn't get a sense of where I was. I tried to get to the tennis club, which I did tried to hit, and I hit the ball off at a right angle over the fence. I I couldn't coordinate my body, um, let alone see the ball. It kept shifting in different positions. It was the most um, unique feeling that I've ever felt before. It was, um, yeah, quite incredible. I thought it may have been blood sugar or low blood sugar. I had to withdraw from my match because I just I couldn't function physically. It was like, you know, I, I – ca- it's it's very difficult to go into more detail about it. It's nothing like I'd ever experienced. But I came home, I continued to have those symptoms that I couldn't concentrate on one spot for very long. It kept moving. It was difficult to read a piece of paper because the the lines were moving. I felt very uncoordinated. I couldn't do really simple things like, you know, move on the tennis court and hit a tennis ball. That was almost impossible to me. It was really difficult. And um, by the time I got the diagnosis, it was maybe five or six months later where I was wondering, well, what do I do? No, I didn't have black and white answers. In sport generally, or life, there are more black and white answers. And that's what I was searching for. I didn't get that for a long time. Uh, It was incredibly frustrating. And I was down. I think I was actually depressed because, you know, I remember pulling out my phone jacket home for four days at a time, staying in my pajamas, not leaving the house. I mean, I don't think that's Normal looking back, but I probably should have gone and spoken to someone. I didn't. Uh, I wish I did. I wish I had the encouragement from some people around me, maybe just to, you know, get out of the house and go and speak to someone. But no one really pushed me because when I was in front of people, I'd always put on this, I guess, happier, more confident front. I didn't want people to worry. You don't want to give up your weaknesses. Not that being sick is a weakness, but that's how I considered it. That's probably the biggest regret. Of my life, maybe not dealing with it in the proper way, but uh once I got my diagnosis, I saw a number of doctors, and probably the thing that hit me the hardest was when one of them said, "Well, these things last years and years, and you know you might have to start thinking about you know and something else to do with your life. you know tennis is one percenters it's not." It's not uh, 25%. It's you need 1% to be great, let alone, you know, I was, I, I, I was pretty damaged and, and done. And You need coordination. You need good vision. You need to be able to move. You need to be dynamic. You need to think. You need to travel. All these um, important aspects to tennis I, I couldn't do. So that really hit me hard when I started thinking, well, what do I do now? all I've ever done is play tennis. It was a real moment in time that I'll never forget where I was when I received that phone call. It was really odd. And and another regret, you know, I didn't share that. I didn't share that. I have so many regrets about those few years. But I did come back. I did come back a second time. It took a lot of time, a lot of rehab. Probably the hardest thing was I remember having to go to a vestibular physiotherapist, which generally these problems and symptoms are a part of a, I, I feel like I can say it, but an old person's condition. So when I went to see my vestibular physiotherapist, they were in an old person's rehab home. You know, it smelt like an old person's rehab home yeah, too. Yeah,
0: and there is a certain smell about.
1: And I was the youngest by about 58 years. Yeah. So that to me wasn't, you know, that wasn't inspiring yet. I had to go through it. I had to do it. I'd take myself off there and and I'd do it because I was so good at ticking off what I needed to do for tennis. So that was, that was part of it. But I did come back slowly, but surely. Um, and then, you know, I had some of the most enjoyable moments of my career after that point in time, when I came back, admittedly at a much lower level, I just could never quite get back to that same level that I was. I had elbow injuries you know, so I pulled a few calf muscles, old person's injury again. Yeah. But, um, you know, a few years later, I won the French Open women's doubles with a very good friend of mine, Mara Santangelo. My coach, Paul Kildery at the time, you know, we celebrated long into the night that night. It's something I never, ever, ever dreamed or thought would happen beyond that point in time. But you go through certain moments you know, it's it's part of history now. I've learned a lot from that. So that's when now doing what I do, not just as a parent, but in my role in Fed Cup and sport and women's tennis, I feel that having that experience and the knowledge and probably the tools to, to ask more questions of athletes, ask how they're feeling, um, and probably helping them along the way in terms of, you know, directing them to the right areas if they're not quite feeling up to scratch or up to speed.
0: Do you have any... After effects, long-lasting effects, or is it something no, that's behind now. you now?
1: No, all done and dusted, thank God. But it took a number of years, I think three or four, really, to get right. And that's when I was at my peak too. You know, that's probably the the, the hardest thing when I came crashing down. You, you don't know quite what to do. I was ranked number eight in the world in singles. I'd, you know, won an Olympic medal, beaten Sharapova, quarter-finalist at the Australian Open, won the Australian Open, and then things, you know crumbled down and it was a really really difficult um difficult time for me.
0: Thankfully life is better now. How's Perth? That's where you are now. That's
1: wonderful. It's um it's home now. It's it's big enough and it's small enough. I mm. grew up. I just described my childhood to you. You know, Kidman Park, South Australia. It's a smaller place. I've i spoke about liking playing for a team and being in a team and in in Perth I feel like you know, I have a team around me in the sense of community. I've got a lot, a lot of friends that live in the couple of streets nearby, you know, see the same mates at the coffee shop in the morning, at the beach every day. You know, you might have to move there because um, there's a lot of great things about Perth, but the lifestyle's phenomenal. I've always loved the heat, love playing in the Australian open heat and bring it on. It's always at home in Perth. Um, and my my job now is travel. I can do that from any point in the globe. And I certainly have been able to coordinate it, um, living in Perth, Western Australia. I've been embraced there, which is wonderful, over the past eight years. I've lived there, um, lived with my husband, Tim, and two children, Yannick and Mika. I mean, life can't be any better.
0: Do you get to the footy? Do you go to that brilliant new stadium? I do go to the
1: footy. And that's, by the way, I have changed footy teams because Uh when we moved to Perth, I know, I cop it, but I didn't want my son or daughter growing up not going to a footy game, potentially a home match all year. That's the conundrum we would face if we didn't pick a local team.
0: So no, that who be, is it? That
1: wouldn't be fun for a you know a young kid growing up who plays os kick, would it? Not it's going. It's got to. to
0: a, it's got to be Eagles. So thing, it is the it? West Coast yeah.
1: Eagles. Yes. And you were. Yes. I previously. Jump, uh, jump on the train, and I take my kids. I pack their lunchbox. Jump on the train go to the stadium, it's just, it's magical, you know. And I talk about Perth being small. You get on the train there, there's probably about 20 people you know that are on the the next couple of stops. It's a a great... Afternoon out. There's nothing better. I love going with my kids, and at times I'll go with some of my my girlfriends as well. I, I love the footy, um, but it's uh, it's our team. That's my team.
0: Who were you good. previously?
1: Well, I've switched a couple of times. You know that. But I grew up in Adelaide, so you know Port Power was my first football team.
0: Yeah. I'm
1: probably the one of the probably the only person out there that's proud to have switched a few football teams. <laughs> but um, I, you know, I have this rule, and I tell all my friends. If, you know, if your footy team finishes last, you're allowed to switch. It's become a bit okay, of a joke. Righto, fair but, enough. Uh... <laughs> All
0: right. Well, uh, we've got two West Coast Eagles supporters here, you and my producer. And given the fact that you beat Collingwood in the grand final, I'm not talking to you anymore. So that's the end of the program.
1: Long live the Eagles.
0: Uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. Um, it's um, It's been a delight to share the microphone with you at the tennis and in the studio today. And thank you for recapping uh, some of the great moments in your life. and Normally I won't do this because it dates the program, but um, I want to say happy birthday. Thanks for coming in.
1: Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: Alicia Mollick joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life, and we'll be back at the same time next week with another edition of the program. Hope you can join us then.